Good morning to everyone. If you missed the, the opening announcements, uh, the speakers aren't quite working properly. And so if you were in the back, again, you can feel free to move up where I think the, uh, the volume is a little better. It's nice to see some of you already shifted. It's nice to see the bishops so close to the front where I can keep my eye on them. And uh, again, there are a few other seats scattered over here. So if it isn't sound is a problem back there, please indeed feel free to, to move up. I invite you to turn with me in God's Word to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians 15. Many, many years ago, uh, Charles Spurgeon, in one of his sermons, we're back in the 1800s, uh, he asked his congregation, have you ever heard of the man who had a bag of gold on board a ship? The ship was sinking, and he went down to his cabin, put as much gold as he could into a belt, and then fastened the belt around his waist. When he jumped for the lifeboat, he missed, and he sank with the weight of his own gold dragging him down. There was no hope for that man. His treasure was his ruin. Now, that's a little depressing, isn't it? That's very depressing. And yet there is a great truth in that illustration, in that tale of this man who valued his wealth to such a degree, valued his gold to such an extent that he was willing to risk all, and in the end, it actually led to his ruin, dragging him down to the depths below. Uh, there's an extremely important lesson there, isn't there? Um, there are many things in this life that we can hold a little too tightly. And in holding them a little too tightly, in doing so, uh, we run the risk of ruin. We run the risk of turning things into our treasure, which were never intended to be our treasure. We, 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 we're faced with this threat of making things of such importance that we have such a firm hold on them that in the end, they might very well drag us down to the depths below. Uh, Paul says to Timothy, he warns him, it's in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 12, he commands him, uh, young man, fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called. I preached to some of the young people here a couple of weeks ago, and that was our text, and it has been on my mind ever since. And just mulling this over, take hold of the eternal life to which you were called. To take hold of it means what? We let go of other things. To take hold of it with both hands means we have released everything else. And Paul is telling Timothy, saying, look, this is not a future ambition. I'm not telling you to look forward to eternal life. I'm not telling you to merely think of what awaits you. No, what I'm telling you to do is simply this. 
make eternal life what is coming a present reality to such a degree that it is your greatest treasure, that it occupies first place in your heart and you have both hands firmly grasped on this eternal life to such a degree that it shapes you. It determines your decisions. It determines your values, what you live for, and hold everything else in life in relative value because you have taken hold of eternal life now. I want us to have that simple command in the forefront of our minds as we turn one more time to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called. Paul begins the chapter with a simple reminder. Verse 1, Now I remind you, brothers, of the gospel. I preached to you which you received. I came to Corinth and I announced good news. You received it. You believed it. Of first importance, Christ died. He died for our sins. Christ was buried. Christ rose again. Look at verse 11. Whether then it was I or they, that is other apostles, so we preach. And so you believe. This is the historical record. This is an historical account. I'm simply reviewing for you what transpired in your presence. I showed up. I walked into that city one day, as did other apostles, other preachers, other prophets, and we proclaimed the gospel. We announced good news. And the good news is simply this. Christ died for our sins. He was buried and he rose again. And these things are of first importance. So Paul is amazed as we come to the 12th verse. Amazed isn't the right word. He is downright perplexed. That's a little too soft as well. What are we looking for here? He's stupefied. Is that the word? Just flabbergasted. There's a good word. He is absolutely flabbergasted at what is now happening in the church at Corinth. Verse 12. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, which you know he is because I proclaimed it and you received it, you believed it. How can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? And in this chapter, he basically responds to that element, that contingent in the church at Corinth. And he sets them straight as to the indissoluble union between Christ's past resurrection and the future resurrection of his people. We're going to pick it up in verse 20 and go as far as verse 28 and listen closely to what Paul says in this portion of the chapter. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order. And here Paul goes off a little bit. It's incidental to his main argument. His main argument is to prove that there is a resurrection of the dead. But now he goes off just for a few verses to explain when it is actually going to happen. Verse 22. 
For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ, the first fruits. Then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end. When he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death, for God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the son himself will also be subjected to him, who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. So when is this going to happen? Uh, when is this resurrection going to take place? I want to walk you through it six Baby steps, simple, simple steps that emerge from these verses. And then I want to take a U-turn and come all the way back then to 1 Timothy 6.12. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called. And I want us to make this future hope, the resurrection of the dead, a present reality whereby it is our greatest treasure. So step one, as we answer this question, as Paul explains that when the resurrection will happen, step one that we need to be clear on is this. Christ rose from the dead as the first fruits. That's the starting point. He says it right at the outset of verse 23, but each in his own order. So there's order here. There's a system. Christ, the first fruits. So Christ rose from the dead as the first fruits. I explained this last Lord's Day. Again, simply, it isn't complicated. In Old Testament times, the Israelites, they would plant and then they would harvest. Maybe in August, September, October, November, whenever the harvest was. And as that harvest became, started to appear, they would, they would reap what they had sowed. They would take the first fruits of that harvest and presented as an offering that first fruits represented the whole, the whole harvest. That's what Paul is saying here. The Lord Jesus is the first fruits. He is representative of what? The whole harvest. Don't think of the resurrection, Christ's past resurrection, and our future resurrection as two separate events. They aren't. There is only one event, the resurrection with two episodes, the first fruits, Christ, and the rest of the harvest in due course, his people. It's an absolute certainty, Paul explains in verses 20 through 22. How do we know? Because he draws this comparison between Adam and Christ. He says, look, there are two representatives. The first representative is Adam. And Adam, when he was back there in the garden, was the representative of every human being who's ever lived. And he was given a command as the representative of all humanity. And he disobeyed as the representative of all humanity. Therefore, his condemnation, guess what? It's your condemnation. And the curse that he incurred is your curse. It has been the curse of everyone since then. Adam's sin is imputed, reckoned to absolutely every single person who has ever lived 
Why? Because he is humanity's representative. Oh, but there's a second head. Praise God. He is the last Adam, the Lord Jesus Christ. And he is the head, not of the old humanity, but of the new humanity, the new creation. And we are made one with him, our head, by means of the baptism with the Holy Spirit. And what is true of our head is true of us because he has acted as our representative. And so when he died, guess what? As far as God is concerned, if you are a Christian, you died legally in the sight of God. When he was buried, you were buried. And when he rose again, you rose again. It's going to happen. It's an absolute certainty. The first fruits has been raised from the dead. And the same spirit by which the Lord Jesus rose from the dead is the spirit by which we will rise from the dead. It is going to happen. Christ rose from the dead as the first fruits. That's the first step. Second step is this. Christ reigns. Here we are in the present. Until he has subjected all his enemies. Look at verse 25. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. And so after the resurrection, before the Lord Jesus sent out the disciples, the apostles to make disciples of all the nations, what's the first thing he told them? All authority has been given to me. All authority has been given to me. He's been entrusted with a kingdom, a kingship. And right now he reigns at the right hand of God on high. God entrusted this authority to him by virtue of his resurrection at his exaltation. When Paul tells us in Ephesians 1, he seated him at his right hand, far above all rule and authority, and power, and dominion, and he put all things in subjection under his feet. Please understand, my friend, I know it's controversial, but I think it's worth saying, and certainly worth us understanding. Christ's reign does not begin at his second coming. Christ's reign began 2,000 years ago by virtue of his resurrection and ascension. And right now, all Things are in subjection under his feet. And he possesses all authority right now. And he's basically only doing two things, so to speak. Sums it up, I think, beautifully. He is using that authority to save his people and build a kingdom, a spiritual kingdom. It's the church. And he is using that authority, whether we discern it or not, to destroy his enemies. He reigns right now. And he will continue to do so until he has subjected all his enemies. The third step is this. Christ will come again. Back to verse 23. But each in his own order, Christ the first fruits, then at his 
coming. Parousia, with his coming. Wonderful description of it in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. The Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. He will come again. He will descend bodily, visibly, suddenly, gloriously, and triumphantly. That's the third step. The fourth step is this. At his coming, Christ's people will rise from the dead to inherit eternal life. Again, verse 23. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. It is the resurrection of the dead. The Lord Jesus declared in John 5, do not marvel at this. For an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Everyone's going to rise again, believers and unbelievers. It's a resurrection for all. It's not the resurrection merely in and of itself that is our hope. It is the fact that as Christians, we will be raised to eternal life whereas unbelievers will be raised to the second death. We as believers will be raised to the fulfillment of our great hope, whereby unbelievers will be raised to experience judgment. But it's going to happen when Christ comes, he will raise his people from the dead to inherit eternal life. The fifth step I want you to notice is this. God, Christ will then deliver the kingdom to God. Look at verse 24. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death for God has put all things in subjection under his feet. And so by virtue of his resurrection, at the time of his exaltation, we have his coronation. And we have the Lord Jesus reigning now far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. We have all things placed in subjection under him, whereby he can declare all authority has been given to me. All authority in heaven and on earth. He reigns right now. And he does so, says Paul until he has subjected all his enemies. The last of these enemies, according to verse 26, is what? Death. When death is destroyed, this is when he delivers the kingdom to the Father. The final act of Christ's present reign is the destruction of death. The final act of Christ's present reign is the resurrection. At that time, he will deliver the kingdom to God. And this will mark, 
says Paul back at the start of verse 24, the end. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last of these enemies to be destroyed is death, destroyed at the resurrection. The sixth step is this. God will be all in all. Verse 28. When all things are subjected to him, then the son himself will be also subjected to him. I don't think the son there means the second person of the Trinity per se is deity. It is still a reference to Christ and his mediatorship. It will be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, purpose clause, so that God may be all in all. And so the purpose of Christ's reign is to subject all things to God for his glory. It is to draw all the attention to God. It is, says the Apostle Paul in Philippians 1, it is, says he, so that every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. There you have it. The resurrection of the dead when, six steps, Christ rose from the dead as the first fruits. Christ reigns until he has subjected all his enemies. Christ will come again. Christ's people will rise from the dead to inherit eternal life. Christ will deliver the kingdom to God and God will be all in all. Did you get that? All right. In the context then of 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 12, Take hold of the eternal life to which you have been called. What does it mean to take hold of this? I'm going to make seven affirmations. I have thought long and hard on this. I have gone back over sermons, recent sermons, ancient sermons, and just gathers some thoughts, some implications of this. It has been on my mind, as I shared with you already, for the past couple of weeks. What does this mean to take hold of it now? We see clearly what's going to happen. We understand the resurrection of the dead. What is our hope? It will be a resurrection to eternal life. We understand it's going to happen at Christ's coming. We get it. This is going to be the end. The kingdom then handed over to the Father and God will be all in all. This is what's going to happen. This is the future. I'm no prophet. I don't have to be a prophet. I simply have to declare what is there in God's word. Well, if that is it, if that's what's coming and Paul says, look, you need to think on this and you need to take hold of it. Take hold of the eternal life to which you have been called. What does that mean? And what is that going to look like? Well, here are several pastoral points of application that I trust the Lord will bless to us. Again, before I get to them, I think this is of utmost importance. I think it explains a great deal in our day. 
I think it remedies a number of ailments and problems, pastorally speaking. And I think in our day, I'm convinced in our day, that um, the church has lost something of the urgency of Christ's coming and the urgency of the future resurrection and the significance of what eternal life is and eternal life entails. Let me just put it to you in black and white in, in case I, you, I'm, you're just not getting it. Here it is as plainly as I can put it. I'm convinced that many believers, myself included, uh, we live as if this life is all there is. We live like this is it. And yeah, we get heaven as a bonus at the end. But basically, this is it. And we're so engrossed in the moment, so consumed with the immediate, that uh, we have hold of many things. But sadly, perhaps we do not have hold of eternal life to the degree or the extent to which we should. So here are, again, seven pastoral words of counsel for me, for you. Here we go. Number one, fix your eyes on Christ's coming. It's a discipline. Fix your eyes on Christ's coming. Let me warn you, in case you aren't already aware of it, I'm sure most of us are, Investments can evaporate. Houses can crumble. Jobs can disappear. Relationships can sour. Health can fail. And hope does not run from these things. Hope faces these things while rising above them. Because hope is fixed on what will be. Hope is fixed on the return of Christ. Hope is fixed on the resurrection from the dead. Hope is fixed on the full and final deliverance from sin. Hope is fixed on the renovation of the entire cosmos. Hope is fixed on the eradication of all pain and anguish and suffering. Hope is fixed on eternal life. Hope has taken hold of eternal life, making it a present reality. Oh, fix your eyes on it. Thomas Manton says, here is misery. There is happiness. Here is sin. There is holiness. Here is shame. There is glory. Here is labor. There is rest. Here is the cross. There is the crown. Here is the conflict. There is the full and absolute conquest and reward. Here is the work. There is the crown. Here is the absence of God. There is the fullness of God. Here is weakness. There is perfection. Oh, take hold of it, friend. Take hold of it. Fix your eyes on Christ's coming. Here's a second word of pastoral counsel. Fill your mind with God's promises. In the meantime, let's fill our minds with the promises of God. But let's be very clear on what they are. He has promised eternal spiritual blessings. He has promised unconditionally eternal 
spiritual blessings. We already possess them. We do not yet enjoy them to the extent to which we will, but we already possess them by right because we are seated with Christ in the heavenly places. Therefore, we have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. It is ours by right, but we await the inheritance. But God has promised us these things and we fix and fill our minds with these things. And be very clear on this as well. He has promised present temporal, material blessings, but he has done so conditionally. Oh, we need to be very clear on that. His future spiritual blessings are unconditional, absolute certainties. His present material blessings are very conditional upon what? His own good plans and purposes for us. And so the Lord Jesus commands us to do what? Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things, other things, will be added unto you. Added unto us, how? However our heavenly Father deems best. Oh, fill our minds with these promises. These present day blessings are provided based upon what our Father deems best for his eternal glory and our spiritual good. His wisdom is not our wisdom, and his ways are most certainly not our ways. His judgments are not our judgments, and his perspective is quite different from our perspective. And he alone knows what is best for us. So let's fill our minds with his promises but so that we don't set ourselves up for failure and unnecessary disappointment and disillusionment, let's be clear on what the promises are. Unconditional future spiritual blessings. Very conditional, immediate, present, temporal, material blessings in accordance with the wisdom of our Heavenly Father who works all things according to the counsel of His will. Third word of pastoral counsel. Shape your perspective according to Christ's present reign. All authority has been given to me. Go and make disciples of the nations. All authority. He has subjected all power and authority under his feet. He reigns supremely over the affairs of man. He has entered history and assumed humanity. He has conquered sin and ascended to glory. And now he possesses all authority, unrivaled, unchallenged, whereby he saves his people as he wills and defeats his enemies as he pleases, it is all under his control. And wonder of wonders, he controls all things and rules over all things with the best interests of his people, the church, in view. Oh, oh how we need that. If you are living on a 24-7 diet of the news, oh, how desperately you need some perspective. If uh, you are overwhelmed by world events, national events, 
Oh, how desperately you need some perspective. If you feel you are right under it, given the circumstances of life and whatever it is you're going through presently, oh, some perspective, how needed and required it is that in actual fact, there is only one ruler, folks. Whatever's going on, whatever we, we bemoan, whatever we're seeing or hearing or whatever we're, as we look ahead and, and, and dreading what the next year might bring or the next 10 years, Oh, shape your perspective according to Christ's present reign and submit yourself to his will with respect to present conditions and future events. That's part of what it means to take hold of eternal life. Here's number four. Let go of everything that loosens your grip on eternal life. Let go of it. Or you'll be like that man in that sad tale who had the money belt filled with gold, leapt for the lifeboat, missed it, and sadly down he went, plunging to his death. Let go of everything that loosens your grip on eternal life. It might be wealth. It might be honor. Could be success or pleasure. It might be a private sin or a secret indulgence. It might be selfish ambition. It might be the love of ease. It might be past wrongs, present problems, future worries. Whatever it is, if you don't let go of it, it will sink you. The Lord Jesus Christ abides no rivals, folks. He will be all or he will be nothing. We're to sell all to purchase that land as we esteem the value of that precious pearl, the Lord Jesus Christ himself, and to take hold of eternal life. And again, do not misunderstand it. Do not miss it. It is a commandment. Take hold of it. Both hands, reach out, grab it. This is to be your treasure. It is to shape everything. Well, to grab it with our hands means we must release everything else. And we must be willing to bid adieu, farewell to all rivals and hold all things in relative esteem to that great pearl of price, the Lord Jesus Christ himself. So why the Lord Jesus could say so scandalously, he who does not hate father, mother, brother, sister, and come after me is not what? Worthy of me. Literally hate them? despise them? That's not what he means. What does he mean? Oh, we are to understand the relative value and worth of all things in comparison to Christ. Oh, take hold of eternal life. Spurgeon says a man will sacrifice all, thankful if he can get out of the burning house alive, though all his worldly goods are destroyed. Interesting way to view life, isn't it? We're trying to run out of a burning house. Trying to avoid, have it all come down on top of us. And as we're trying to get out from under that threat, uh, we flee, we run. And the value of all that we're leaving behind in comparison to our life, well, it becomes quickly what, folks? Of absolutely no significance at all. This is what Paul is saying. Oh, take hold of eternal life. Some of us live as though we are convinced this is all there is. And there may be someone here right now who very well needs to let go of something. There may be a lot of us here right now 
who need to let go of something. Oh, let it go. It's repentance is what it is, to use an old-fashioned but yet very biblical world. It is repentance. It is turning from all rivals. It is holding things again in relative esteem in comparison to the Lord Jesus. Let go of everything that loosens your grip on eternal life. Here's number five. Guard your heart from all that dampens hope. And so as we think of eternal life, as we think of the coming resurrection, as we think of the coming judgment, as we think of the separation between believers and unbelievers, as we think of the new heavens and the new earth in which righteousness dwells, oh, guard your heart from all that distracts from that and dampens your hope. If we focus on past sins, past pains, past problems, past losses, past failures. We are inviting disappointment. If we become so obsessed with present circumstances, whereby our future hope is dampened and our grip loosened on eternal life, uh, this is ultimately detrimental and will lead to disappointment and discouragement. If we are obsessed with world events, so many of us are, so focused on the latest news cycle, bemoaning this and bemoaning that, and negativity, negativity, negativity. We're setting ourselves up for a perpetual state of unhappiness. If that's you, you need to take steps to guard your heart. You're not to take hold of the latest newspaper headline. You're not to take hold of the next election cycle. You're not to take hold of whatever he's saying, she's saying, all the talking heads. Yeah, be informed, fine. You're to take hold of eternal life and evaluate and weigh all things accordingly. Guard your heart from all that dampens hope. Here's number six. Entrust your circumstances to God who uses them according to his will. And please, Lord, teach me this one because I still need to learn it. Circumstances do not cause my feelings. What I think about my circumstances causes my feelings. Huge difference. World of difference. Let me repeat it. Circumstances do not cause your feelings. What we think about our circumstances causes our feelings. There are plenty of events, conditions, and circumstances that we cannot change. But we can change how we respond to them. That is what is within control. That is what God calls us to do. Oh, taking hold of eternal life. It is a tremendous remedy for disappointment, for worry, for fear. It brings so much needed perspective. And here's number seven, the final one. Pastoral word of counsel. Find your ultimate joy in Jesus Christ. Take hold of eternal life. Find your ultimate joy in Jesus Christ. I have a picture. I have several pictures in my office. When here sits my desk and the door up here and the wall up there. So I, every time I, I look that direction, I see it. And it's that famous verse out of the Gospels. Uh, Sir, we would see Jesus. 
It was given to me years ago by an old timer. Going back 30 years, he gave me this. I've taken it everywhere I've gone and always placed it clear in view. Sir, we would see Jesus. Oh, fix your eyes on Christ. Find your ultimate joy in Christ. Oh, set your mind, says the Apostle Paul in Colossians 3, on things above. It's where our hope is. The Lord Jesus Christ himself. Oh, look ye saints, says the hymn writer. The sight is glorious. See the man of sorrows now. From the fight returned victorious. Every knee to him shall bow. And looking upon the Lord Jesus, his finished work, his present reign, his coming again, the hope of the resurrection. Oh, we do indeed take hold of the eternal life to which we have been called. Our Heavenly Father, we bless your name this morning as we're gathered here in your presence. And we thank you for the scriptures. And thank you for entrusting them to us, enabling us to understand them. We pray for the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of you that truly as we I've considered this portion out of your word this day that we might grow in our understanding of who you are, your ways with us, and your will for us. We declare the excellencies of the Lord Jesus, the one who loved us and gave himself up for us. We think and ponder of how delightful he is in your sight, the apple of your eye. And we thank you as Christians for our union with him and the grace upon which we now stand and the peace that we enjoy with you. As we turn our attention to the Lord's Supper, may we again be reminded of the Lord Jesus, his finished work. May the bread remind us of his broken body and the cup of his spilt blood. And in these, may we see the price of our redemption and of your great love for us poured out upon Calvary's cross. Receive our thanks, hear our prayer, accept our praise. In the name of the Lord Jesus, we offer it. Amen. And so if you're going to help me serve the Lord's Supper, now is the time for you to join me at the front. I also ask you to turn your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 14. 1 Corinthians 11, rather, which we will reference in a few moments together. Let's use this time for contemplation as I play and then we'll sing together.
Behold the Lamb who bears our sins away, slain for us. And we remember the promise made that all who come in faith find forgiveness at the cross. So we share in this bread of life and we drink of his sacrifice.